So look, for me personally, I should have, I should have worn my Uruguay shirt. <laughs> well, don't do that. That's that's a bit too painful, a bit too close to bone for me personally. So obviously, <laughs> I'm Ghanaian. Um, yeah, we've got history. That's the first thing I said as soon as Carlos told me he's Uruguayan. I said, "We've yeah. got history. We've got history." <laughs> Um, and here we are, um, you know, what, 11 years later. It was the 2010 World Cup, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and uh, the Uruguayan football, Suarez is still there. And uh, and Uruguayan football is on the rise, apparently. So tell me all about it, boys. What's been going on? Well, uh, we've got a winner of the Clausura tournament. It's Liverpool. So Liverpool is doing well yeah. in the league, <laughs> at least somewhere. <laughs> but... What is exciting about this uh, league in Uruguay? They won the Clausura tournament, but now they're going to play the winner of the Apertura tournament, the first tournament of the year, Rentistas. And that's also quite unusual when you have Rentistas in Liverpool as winners. Normally, it's Nacional de Peñarol, one of the big clubs in the country. But no, they won those tournaments. And now they're going to play in the semi-final for a place in the final for the winner of the year. And who are they playing in the final? Well, because they have two short tournaments, but there is also a big table. At the end of the year, the team with the biggest number of points, the most points in, in this table, goes to the final. Now it's Nacional. It looks like it's going to be Nacional. So these two winners of short tournaments are playing in the semi-final to get into the final. So that whole system for me, Carlos uh, can say what he thinks, was designed to have more games between Nacional and Peñarol. <laughs> but now it's a different situation. Now it's uh, uh, Rentistas, uh, quite a small club against Liverpool, also not the biggest club in the land. Okay. <laughs> so yes, it's, uh, it's uh, a strange system. Uh, but what they do in a lot of South American countries is devise these uh, tournaments in order, as Dimitra said, to have more matches, have more matches between the top teams. And also there is a method to try to protect big teams from getting relegated. Right. Uh, but this season, as Dimitra said, two small teams uh, won the two uh, smaller tournaments. Uh, the one that won the Apertura, the opening tournament, as it's called, Rentistas, is, is even smaller than Liverpool in Uruguay. It's a tiny team. Uh, and in fact, in the second tournament, I think, well, I think they're bottom at the moment. Uh, but because they won the first round, they will play that semi-final. And um, you, you've got to say that um, uh, Liverpool, Uruguay and Liverpool, who... Um, whose shirt is like Inter Milan's, okay. um, have a, a very sensible and intelligent president who has been working hard in the development of players and on the financial side, and he's building up the team. They have plans to build a stadium as well. Okay. And, um, and, and they don't stop producing good players, and they're on the rise. They're doing very well. So that's uh, very interesting. Let's see how they do 
when uh, they compete in the Libertadores, as it seems they will do um, in the uh, in the coming season. So talk to me about the players that obviously we know the Suarez, Cavani. Who, who else is out there who is like a Uruguayan player of some substance? So you've obviously talked a bit about the young players. What about the players who are like mature? Just so I can understand the team as a whole, obviously with the World Cup next year. Well, you're going to get changes in the uh, in the team. Probably Cavani and Suarez will both go to a World Cup. But will they be available for all matches? Will they be able to play 90 minutes? You know, injury, fatigue uh, with players who will be 35 by then. Uh, they played together at the Under-20 World Cup in Canada uh, many years ago. And they've stayed together as the uh, uh, striking partnership. Now, what I would say about Uruguayan football is I would not say it's on the rise. I would say it's trying to get back to where it was. Okay. Because, you see, and I think it's important for people to understand, there has never been such a dominant force and such a major power as Uruguay many years ago. Yeah, yeah, good point. I mean, Uruguay dominated world football in a way that no one else ever has. Mm. And you've got to um, understand several things. Uh, for instance, Uruguay played four consecutive World Cup world tournaments shall we say because two world cups and two olympic tournaments which were the only two olympic tournaments which fifa uh, recognized as a world tournament mm. because they were the only two that had teams from all continents and they were the two last ones before the first ever world cup so uruguay played those two and then they played two world cups and won all four yeah You've got four stars, haven't you? Four stars on your on your shirt. That's because fifa recognizes those two olympic tournaments as World Cups, you see. Yeah. Um, it took Uruguay um, uh, twenty no, uh, was it thirty years to lose their first ever match in a world tournament? Wow. Thirty years. Wow. <laughs> now I'm I'm just going to briefly. I, I just worked out some statistics for you, which I think you'll find interesting. Um, in those four world tournaments, the two World Cups and the two Olympics. Uruguay played 21 matches, mm. won 20, drew one, lost lost zero. Wow, that's incredible. Scored, seven, scored 75 goals, conceded 17. Oh, my God. Just... Um, so our first ever defeat was a semi-final in, uh, against Hungary in the 1954 World Cup. Right. That was the first ever defeat. Um, if you look at, for instance... Uh, Uruguay has organized major tournaments, South American Championships, World Cup. Um, and uh, we've played at home, as I said, organizing major tournaments, 45 matches, won 38, drawn seven, lost zero. Wow. Scored 111 goals, conceded 22. Incredible. Now you see, it's the, and in, in South America, we're the only country to have never lost a game at home in a major tournament. Really? Brazil and Argentina have both lost at home. Guess who they lost to? Uruguay. They lost, they lost to Uruguay. <laughs> so when you look at these cold statistics. That's incredible. Um, the captain of the early team, the one that won those, well, the won the World Cup and the uh, Olympics, Hossein Asasi, who is a legendary figure, 
He played in nine major international tournaments with Uruguay. Nine. And he won seven. Wow. He won seven out of nine. Awesome. No one has got an international record like him. So anyway, you know, you put all these things together and you realize that whatever Uruguay does now, it's never going to match up to what they did in the, in, in the past. The problem has been that Uruguay suffered a terrible slump from about the 70s to practically 2000. And now Uruguay's on the way back. Uruguay's producing players. It's now competitive again. We're semi-finalists in 2010, quarter-finalists in 2018. We're on our way back. But until we win the World Cup again, which I think we should, then we, we will not be back to where we were. And to be honest, I think Uruguay should have won the 2018 World Cup. Okay. All right. So, Dimitri, no, no, thank you. That's that's incredible statistic. So, Dimitri, thinking about, obviously, what, what obviously um, Carson just talked about, um, what what's the chances this year or next year rather Qatar burning hot place um, but an incredible team that they're going to do well some damage I don't know if they're going to win it but what, what do you what do you think the chances are? Well, it's difficult to say anything about the chances they have to qualify first. There is a yeah. long and grueling campaign that they they are well positioned now. They should qualify, I think. But when we talk about this, when we talk about chances, when we talk about winning the World Cup, the chances of winning the World Cup, we have to keep in mind that we're talking of a, about a country with a bit more than three million people. Tiny population. It's a bit less than three and a half million. And recently, there was a 16-year-old kid just a few days ago who plays for Danubio. In Uruguay, Nicolas Siri, who scored his first ever hat trick, 16 year old striker. In wow. his second his... game, his second game. Second start, I'd say. Second he, start, he had yeah. like eighth game in the first team, second start, hat trick. Now, Danubio, well, people will say, what, what kind of club is that? Now, I'll just give you a few names. Ruben Sosa, who played in Italy, in Germany in the 90s. Marcelo Salaceta, who played in Italy. Christian Stuani, he now plays in Spain, in Girona. Álvaro Ricova, one of the greatest Uruguayan players ever. Edinson Cavani, they all started at Danubio. All right. So what amazes me, such a small country consistently over the years, keeps producing incredible amount of players. We've mentioned a small club. It's not Nacional. It's not been all. Recobo, of course, when played for Nacional and all, but they played for this tiny club, Danubio. All those great players who had those glorious careers in Europe later. So, it's always been a question for me how, and I wanted to ask Carlos. It's a small country. If we're looking at any example in Europe, I don't know, maybe Croatia in the last 30 years since they became independent comes close, but still not close enough because they played in the World Cup final. They, they're third in 98, but they haven't won European championship now. And Uruguay, of course, uh, being an independent country for so 
many years longer than Croatia is up there. But still, I, I, I just I don't understand what is secret, especially when you consider that basically all the professional clubs, almost 90% of them are based in the capital in Montevideo. Right, okay. So what's the secret then, Carlos? Basically, basically what, what Dimitro says is absolutely spot on because when you talk about Uruguay and people say, oh, you know, they produce so much with three under three and a half million people. Yeah. Um, in fact, because all of the clubs are concentrated in the capital, in actual fact, the Uruguay national team is a national team of only 1.3 million people. Right, because okay. that's, that's the population of the capital. Yes, you have players from other parts of the country, but where they play competitively is in the capital. Right. Seen for capital city clubs. So um, that's that, that's another thing. Just to add one more statistic before we enter a greater dialogue about this, um, you know, if anyone on the street was asked which country has the most has won the most major tournaments, mm. most people would say Brazil. Yeah, some course. people might say Germany or Italy. It's actually Uruguay. Right, twenty okay. major tournaments. Wow. Yeah. So. Um, Anyway, the secret, nobody knows the secret. Nobody can pretend to know the secret. People have often talked about this and that. And um, it, it, every factor that you can uh, separate and try to focus on, mm. you could actually make a case for in other countries. So I don't really know. The only thing that I think is different and which might have some... Uh, influence on the competitive nature of Uruguayan players is that, and Dimitra will know this, uh, from a very young age, there are leagues everywhere uh, which are called baby football. Okay. And those leagues are played by little kids up to, I don't know what age, but you know, maybe 10, 12, but they start at very young age. Now, you know how in, in Europe now, they're trying to say, um, to take away pressure from the kids, they say the result doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, don't some, some places, in some places, they don't even keep score of football matches. That's crazy. Now, in Uruguay, baby football is played to win. Mm. They play to win and they play with a determination and with such enthusiasm that winning is everything. I'm not saying that's the right mentality. I'm not judging what's better and what's worse, whether the, the idea or the notion that kids should not be competing, they should just be playing, or the notion that kids should be playing and competing. All I know is that Uruguayan players, from the very start until they retire from football, they know how to compete. Mm. And it, it's a con constant factory line of players because it always happens Dimitra knows this perfectly well whenever Francescoli retires or Recova retires or when Suarez retires or Cavani everyone says oh what's going to happen to Uruguayan football nothing they keep producing players <laughs> because for instance I'm going to I, I wrote a list here of players who all of whom are under 22 and some of them are breaking into the national side already and when they all do Uruguay will be at the same level, if not better. We've got Darwin Nunez, Darwin Nunez at Benfica, 21 years old. Brian Rodriguez, 
excellent winger, 20. Facundo Pelistri, who was signed by Manchester United and is on loan here in Spain at Alavés, 19. Facundo Torres, 20 at Peñarol. Manuel Ugarte, a fabulous uh, midfielder who I did a video about, um, 19, he's in Portugal right now. Bruno Mendes, the centre-half, playing for Corinthians in Brazil, is a, an interesting case because he was at Wanderers. There's a team called Wanderers in, in Uruguay. And at 19, he was called up to the senior Uruguay national team because Godin was injured, Jimenez was all about four or five of the top center backs were injured. So they brought in this kid, 19, to play against Brazil and play against France. He was immaculate. Wow. He was immaculate. He looked as if he'd been playing for the national team for 20 years. And now we've got Ronald Araujo playing for Barcelona at centre-back as well. We've got Federico Valverde at 22 playing for Real Madrid. There's a kid at Inter Milan, Martin Satriano, who the Italians want to naturalise and want him to play for Italy. And then we've got this kid that um, Dimitri was talking about, Nicolas Siri, 16 years old, uh, who in his first start scored against Nacional. And last week, well, last weekend, scored a hat-trick. And there's one more, Liverpool. We were talking about the Liverpool team that won the tournament. Um, there's, there's a 17-year-old. He might just be 18 by now. I don't know. Uh, Fabricio Diaz, again, uh, who was key in the uh, final of the Intermedio against Nacional uh, last year. Uh, so it's a never-ending production line. That's great. That's great. Any thoughts, Dimitro? Well, we actually, we, we could go on for hours talking about young players that Uruguay have now. And it's just really amazing. It, it, you look at any side, that's what is good about watching Uruguayan league right now. It's been like that for years, because I remember in 2008, when I was commentating on the European Championship Games, we arrived to the stadium, it was in Basel, we were due to come in there, I think, on the quarterfinal of the European Championship. And I just got there earlier so I could watch on my laptop the final of the Uruguayan League of 2008 because it was it was so exciting. You wanted to see those kids. Not all of them, of course, after that had brilliant careers. Mm. But the league itself, even now, yes, of course, it's not the best league in South America, even in South America, it's right. But when you watch those games, you, you see those players and then you see them progressing and go into Europe, go into other South American clubs, bigger clubs, for example, in Brazil. And the competitiveness of this tournament can be also questionable because, of course, you have those two big clubs dominating it, totally dominating it, like Nacional and Peñarol. But we mentioned Danubio, we mentioned Liverpool, we mentioned Wanderers. We can talk about Uruguay and River Plate, uh, also produce some good players. Uh, we can uh, talk about other clubs like Defensor, also won. And I think actually in 2008, it was Defensor who won the title. So there were so many young, exciting players there mm -mm. that you actually just can't stop watching it yeah. <laughs> because it is so interesting from that point of view. It is so interesting for anyone who is passionate about football. And it's been like that. You know, that. That passion has been there for centuries. Because the very first example of tragic passion, I'd say, is Abdon Porte. 
national captain who shot himself in the heart in the center circle of the stadium. And I think Carlos can, even though he's a Pinarol fan, <laughs> he, he, he can say a bit more about that because why he did it? Now, that was the question. And the answer is, well, it's simple and tragic at the same time. Mm. Do you want to fill in the gaps for, for me, Carlos? Yes, Abdon Porte was uh, what we call centre-half. What we call a centre-half is a central midfielder. Okay. Because we still think in the uh, old 2-3-5 system before the offside law was changed. Okay. When the offside law was changed in, was it 1920? 25. 25. Wow. Um, the center half who was the mid the central midfielder was pushed back into defense in order to compensate for uh, um, the law change okay so that's why it, the center half is regarded as a defender but we still use the term pre-law change in 25 okay. and um anyway he played in that position and he was uh, an idol he was a hard-working um, uh, midfielder who was a hero at Nacional and when he because of his age started uh, missing out on being first choice hmm. he thought that he was no longer useful to the club that he loved so he committed suicide and the place he chose to commit suicide was the center circle of the Nacional wow. uh, football, football pitch oh dramatic God. story dramatic story that is that's pretty oof, crazy. That that's the passion again. Um, yeah. I just want I just want to know. I mean, you said you can't place your foot on it, so you, or your finger on it, like you know, whether it's the street football, or whatever. Um, what what in many ways can other nations learn from Uruguayan football? Because you're talking about the churn of top quality players coming out, youngsters coming out. You've got quality players out there. A lot, of, a lot of countries of quality players out there, especially in Europe, obviously where the money is. Um, but what, 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 can you think of anything which we can really like pinpoint our view of ground football that is something that uh, is to be upheld? Well, see if Dimitro agrees with this. I, I think that we cannot teach anyone anything because okay. our football is so badly organized. <laughs> there is no proper system or method Right. That, in fact, our, our way of um, conducting our football is actually holding us back. Mm. You see? So, so okay. we cannot teach anyone anything in organization and in method. Um, also, we have developed a, a, a loser's mentality, I'm afraid, which again we're getting rid of okay mm. Tavares the current national coach has helped but when Uruguay were winning everything and then they lost the 1954 World Cup semi-final to Hungary suddenly the alarm bells rang and from going to believing that they were unbeatable they went to the other extreme they started believing that we were no good so Uruguayan football started being overly cautious and always trying to contain the opposition and, and hope to catch a goal on the break. Mm. You see, we started, we stopped being the dominant team in matches to become the dominated team. Mm. And that, to a certain extent, continues until today. We've got the wrong mentality. 
Look at the way Uruguay played against France in 2018. They played as if to say, France are so superior, we just have to try to hold out. And if we're lucky to get a goal on the break or from a dead ball situation, we might win. No, that's not how we, we should play. We should have played, we, we should have exchanged blows with them. Yeah. In the same way as in the previous round, we beat Portugal, but we, you know, we were dominating, scored, went back into our shell. Portugal dominated, they equalized. Suddenly, because they equalized, Uruguay came out again, scored immediately, and then defended. Why give the opponents the chance to dominate you and to beat you? And with that mentality, you can win big matches, you can be competitive, but you will not win tournaments. Yeah. Now, when it comes to organization and the production of players, I think the production of players is, I don't know why it happens. It seems to be natural, but it's not the result of a particular system. As I said, Uruguayan football is not organized enough to be able to teach anyone anything. Demetra, mm. what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a very interesting and important point because when Carlos mentioned 1954 and the defeat in the semi-final of the World Cup, it's not the end of the world. What kind of alarm bells could start ringing? Even though you won those tournaments, you won the two Olympic Games in 24, 28, you won the 1930 World Cup, 1950 World Cup. What is the problem? It's a semi-final of the World Cup, but Uruguay did not qualify for 58. They lost to Paraguay 5-0 away. They didn't qualify. Wow. So that just shows you really the extremes mm. they sometimes can go to. And it continued because in 66, when it did play the World Cup, it was a very defensive side, 74, even though they had good players. Again, it was a, a side that was difficult to watch. Mm. And then they couldn't return to the World Cup until 1990, I think. And again, they, they played against Italy in the round of 16, the hosts of the tournament. So, okay. And Tavares was the manager as well back then. So, okay, they lost, but oh, we, we played Italy. And then it was 2002 when it was, it was a fantastic game against Senegal when Uruguay were 3-0 down. They equalized and Forlan had the fourth goal just within inches. They could have scored the fourth goal and they, they, they would have gone through. So it's been like that. We, of course, know what happened in 2010, but that semifinal against Netherlands, they could have won it. Mm. They could have won it perfectly. So that change of mentality was so sudden and really unexpected that again it's really difficult to explain mm. what happened and why and because in 1950 we had in a book as we mentioned i'm doing porto we, we have to mention another great figure in the history of Uruguayan football Julio varela the captain of the 1950 side who was a true leader on the pitch because we were doing carlos and i were doing the the all-time greatest uh, for 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 this spanish language channel and i picked up Julio varela as my number five because he was everything he wanted from the leader. When they considered the goal against Brazil in the decisive game, it wasn't the final exactly because of the group stage, it was a decisive game of the 1950 World Cup. He did everything to calm his teammates down. Mm. It was Brazil, it was Maracanã, 200,000 people there. Uruguay had no chance to win that game. They won the game. A draw would have given Brazil the title as well. Yeah. Wow. And five years later, we couldn't even qualify for the World Cup. So there, there are so many issues that 
truly mysterious about Uruguayan football. You can't put your finger on it. And also, you can't stop marveling at it. <laughs> you keep watching it, you want more because you know there will be more. Yeah. You see, one thing that um, happened, referring once again to the 1954 defeat, not only was it a World Cup semi-final, but it was against Hungary, who were an amazing team then. Yeah. Puskas, Hidekuti, Zibor. Um, probably the best team in the world, even though they didn't win the World Cup. They were probably you know, on a par with Uruguay at that time. And um, that defeat was described in Uruguay. It was played in Lausanne, the city of Lausanne in Switzerland. It was described as La Tragedia de Lausanne, the tragedy of Lausanne. <laughs> How dramatic is that? <laughs> so, and the effect, the negative effect of losing that match, I believe, lasts until today. Wow. I believe so, because that mentality, that mentality that that was a tragedy and and what we were doing before that was so successful is not good enough. That's the mentality. And up until now, up until today, that is still the mentality because we do not play our own game. We play um, in relation to what other teams do. We try to nullify the opposition rather than have the opposition worry about us we worry about the opposition right and in 1990 dimitro said we lost to italy we didn't lay a glove on them and we had a fabulous side a fabulous side but they just played in defense trying to withstand a mediocre italian team left fonseca up front even francescoli who was a beautifully creative player was playing defensively we probably had in that World Cup, it was probably in the top three or four teams at that World Cup. But if you play that way, you're not going to win it. When we went out to uh, Colombia in Brazil, uh, again, it was a very negative performance. We went out to France in 2018, again, a very negative performance. Uruguay were performing well, but when the crunch game comes, we seem to go out at the World Cup in the same way. We reach a certain point by playing well, and then when we get close to doing something big, we start worrying. Mm. We've got to get rid of that mentality, and we've got to start thinking that it should be the opponents. Who, listen, if you have Cavani and Suarez up front, mm. it should be your opponents who are worried. True that against Russia, um, Cavani was injured, and true that against Colombia uh, in Brazil, Suarez was suspended, but that, losing one player should not be enough. But even when we do have Cavani and Suarez playing together, we do not provide them the right service because we're playing a, a, a containing game. We do not provide the right service to them. We just hit balls up to the two of them and hope that they in their brilliance will do something. And often they do. But you cannot win tournaments by doing that. What you have to do is build a team that will give them 10, 12 goal scoring chances per game, even eight, because they will take them. They will take two or three. Now, we've wasted Suarez and Cavani in the national team. 
They're going to be 35 at the next World Cup. We've wasted having them because of that way of playing. Yeah, it's very important, the style. Because uh, when Uruguay came to play in the 1924 Olympics, and I know we're talking about something that happened almost 100 years ago, but the European journalists, especially uh, French journalists, were absolutely amazed. They didn't know, they were running about, we didn't know that this game can be played like this. So it was a totally different style. It was a Rio Platense style of football with the passing, with uh, movement of the ball. Uh, uh, Carlos mentioned Nasasi, but you can actually, you name the team of 24, 28. Those all were absolutely fantastic players. And Uruguay played like that in 24, 28, and 30. But what happened also during that time, when the concept of so-called garra charrua appeared. And as I understand, it was an invention of Argentinians because they were losing to Uruguay because they didn't go to 24 Olympic Games, but they arrived in 28, didn't help. They lost the final of the 1930 World Cup to Uruguay. So they needed an explanation as well because they had their own style, similar style. So they wanted to explain it. So they came up with, oh, you know, Uruguayans, they, they're fighters. So that's how they won. Not only because of that they won, but later, maybe after 54, as Carlos mentioned, Uruguayans themselves began to talk more about Garra, which is a fighting spirit, than about football and the style they can actually produce on the pitch. And also I find it a bit amazing that People can talk about Garra Charrua, Charrua being the so-called Indians mm. yeah. <laughs> of that land, when they all exterminated in Uruguay. <laughs> so it's, again, it's another uh, fascinating issue about Uruguayan football, when they convince themselves they're fighters, when they still produce so many players. One of the things that I think uh, is very important to uh, stress with regards to that is that even Uruguayans are uh, unaware that we used to play a very technical and good quality football. That was the real Uruguayan football. But for many years now, people just associate Uruguayan football with running, hard work, hard tackling, uh, not so much skill. I'm talking about your, your midfield players. But if you talk to journalists, football journalists, you talk to football players, Godin once said, oh, we've always played like that. It's not true. This is something that's happened at some particular time and has been stuck with Uruguayan football for a long time and something we have to get rid of. The original Uruguayan football style is what Dimitro said. It was very technical. The Europeans marveled at how Uruguay played football when they came to the Olympics. And Uruguay arrived as the whipping boys. Nobody knew who they were. They were just you know, a team from the other side of the Atlantic who had never competed against Europeans and they were just going to get destroyed. And to a certain extent, the Uruguayan team arrived not knowing what they were going to face. 
in their first match, they played Yugoslavia, who were a force at that time. And Uruguay beat them 7-0. That was their first ever match against the European side. Now, there's a, a funny story that um, the Yugoslavs, not knowing what the Uruguayans were about, went to watch the training session a few days before. And the Uruguayans got to hear that the Yugoslavs were there watching. So what they did was they started uh, miskicking the ball, falling over, just to make them think that they were useless. And then when the match came round, they beat them 7-0. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are French art, uh, newspaper articles you can still get. I have some that talk about the the the, the, the wonderful, the amazing, the, the the artistic style of football that Uruguay had. Um, Jose Leandro Andrade, who was uh, um, a, a left right back, right back in in that team, there was a, a a cartoon of him with a hand at the end of his leg instead of a foot, as if to say, you know, his, his control is so brilliant that it's as if he had a hand. And so, but suddenly, you know, we started believing that we were just runners, basically. And that mentality, we have to purge, we have to get rid of that, we have to get back to basics and get back to what we were. Yes, you can combine your talent with that Garra Charrua, the fighting spirit, which was always present but not instead of technique, which is what has happened for a long time. Now we're getting back to more technical players. I mean, one of the players, the player who's regarded the most talented in the Brazilian league is actually Uruguayan, Georgian de Rascaeta, okay. who's fantastic for his team, played for Cruzeiro, played for Flam plays for Flamengo, brilliant. But when he plays for the national team, he's anonymous. He never does anything. Why? Because of the style. We do not let the technical, the, the, the artistic players flourish. No, it's a fair point. It's a fair point. Interesting, interesting. That's been great education. So here we go. So look, looking at the games coming up. So unfortunately, in March, the game against Argentina has been postponed. That was supposed to be on the 27th of March. And the 30th, that was the uh, FIFA's World Cup South American. And that was against Bolivia, that's 30th. So the next one is not until June, 3rd of June, against Paraguay and then Venezuela after that. Um, and then uh, it hasn't been decided who you're playing Copa America. So how, well, obviously with the pandemic and everything coming up, um, how are Uruguay going to do in the next, well, from June onwards, shall we say? Dimitri, do you want to take this one? No, like I said before, the the qualification in, in the South America is probably the most difficult in the world. But Uruguay, this time, they, they, they should make it. They should be okay. okay. They had the points. Uh, maybe if we talk about the style and the quality of play, we can have some questions. But they should be there. They should get there. Uh, that's a problem now because the games were postponed because, of course, players from Europe couldn't come. And now that's the question, how you can squeeze all that? Mm. I don't know, because if, for example, they cannot play in June, and it is a possibility, even though yeah. they, of course, they, they're getting vaccinated in Argentina or Uruguay, but it's still a possibility. 
you won't have enough dates just to complete the qualification tournament. So what's going to happen then? We, we, we'll have to see that. But uh, if the games are being played, of course, the Uruguay, Argentina, that should be it's a classic. So that should be a very important one. Uh, but uh, I think Uruguay would have enough in them to get points at home against any other side and also get some away because, for example, they lost to Ecuador away and they were outplayed. So this, it's one of the uh, examples of how it can get difficult in that qualification campaign. But I still think that they, they should make it to the World Cup. And then, well, of course, it will depend on the draw. It will depend on the situation with the injuries and there are so many factors to take into account. Yeah. Well, your thoughts, Cass, because you got it's not just the World Cup, you've got Copa America as well starting in June as well. So um, a lot of very, very, very squashed schedule. Um, thoughts? Yes, well, we'll see if that's played or not, the Copa America. Um, okay. There is a chance it may be suspended, I guess, if they have to fit in the World Cup qualifiers. Mm. Um, but um, to be honest, because of the potential of the team, I always go into every tournament thinking we can win it because uh, Uruguay, particularly in the South American Cup, uh, they have to be either winners or challengers. Sometimes they haven't been, obviously. But, um, you know, if, if you look at the squads and you look at Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay, they have players playing in Europe in a larger quantity and at better teams than any of the other teams uh, in South America. Now you see Colombian players breaking into good teams. You see Chilean players. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, um, I think that the potential is still on the side of Brazil, Argentina in Uruguay. Um, but it doesn't always work that way. And and I, I think it has a lot to do with um, team, um, uh, the, the, the uh, playing style, basically. I was going to say team planning, but the team planning has been good. Tavares, the coach, if, if there's one thing that he's done well is that he's put us back on the map. When he picked Uruguay up, we were nowhere. But now we are with him, World Cup semi-finalists, World Cup quarter-finalists. We won the Copa America in 2011. Um, we're always there or thereabouts. But, as I said, in order to actually challenge seriously, I think there has to be a, a change in, in mentality because Tavares is overly cautious. His message is always, you will find reward in the journey. That is what he always says, especially when we lose. Because he's trying to convey the idea that winning isn't important. It's how you do things and, and how, you, how you conduct yourself and how you play along the way, how you improve. But that was never Uruguay mentality. As I was saying before, uh, the mentality before, when Uruguay won everything, they used to say, Finishing second is nothing to celebrate. You see the difference in mentality. And when they thought that way, they used to win. Now that we say the reward is in the journey, we don't win. 
So let's get back to say to, to believing that you have to actually go to tournaments to win them. Well, brilliant. Thank you so much, Carlos. And I think that's a good place to stop. So thank you so much for the passion, the energy about Uruguay from both yourself and Dimitra. And uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts about the teams and uh, the uh, what's Uruguay's chances in the World Cup qualifiers and if the Cup of America is played and their chances in Qatar in 2022. So uh, let us know your thoughts and uh, don't forget to like and subscribe. Thank you.